Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. President Donald Trump has no record of public service, but he does have a record in business and on TV. In our latest round of stories, we introduce you to the people who were there as he built an empire and a name. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be advised that during this program, there may be some words that are profane and not suitable for children. Also, please note that we talk about Puerto Rico, La Isla del Encanto, my homeland, a lot during this program. And we don't mention Hurricane Irma or Hurricane Maria at all because this episode was recorded prior to that devastation. So my prayers, my positive energy are with the people of my island. And I appreciate everyone out there who's been supporting the efforts for relief. Now to our show. What's up, everybody? This is Stretch Armstrong. And hey, what's up? My name is Bob Peter Garcia, a.k.a. Cool Bob Love. Welcome to What's Good with Stretch and Bob, your source for untold stories and uncovered truths from movers and shakers around the world. <laughs> We're talking art, music, politics, and sports. And everything in between. Tonight, we are coming to you from the Bell House in Brooklyn. <laughs> it's Brooklyn tonight! This is our first live show in Brooklyn at the Bell House, and we couldn't have picked out two better guests to have for you today. Joining us now are two esteemed guests, Eric Hayes and Rosie Perez. Give it up. He is an iconic artist and graphic designer responsible for some truly, truly, truly massively important designs and logos, especially in hip-hop. If you look around your house, you'll see records on the Cold Chillin' and Tommy Boy label, for example. Those are Eric's. And uh, logos for the Beastie Boys and for Ella Cool J, as well as collaborations with Nike and G-Shock. And the list just goes on and on and on. We're also joined by Eric Hayes' wife, none other than Rosie Perez, an actress. A producer, an activist, a amazingly supportive, wonderful friend of mine for 30 years. And uh, she has been nominated for Emmy Awards, for Academy Awards. She's appeared in some of your favorite films, including Do the Right Thing. She created this documentary called Yo Soy Boricua, Pa Que Tu Lo Sepas, <laughs> which literally inspired me to become a filmmaker and make that jump. So please give a nice round of applause for Rosie Perez. Thank you. Thank you. Eric and Rosie, you both are pillars for multiple communities, New York and beyond. Now, of course, good people find good people. But I'm intrigued because I've known both of y'all for mad long separately, but didn't know that, that either of you knew each other. Or maybe you didn't know each other for all those years. So how did the two of you meet? Well, that's an interesting who story. Wants to, who wants to tackle that first? We've got a lot of overlapping history, and it's kind of a yes. mystery that we didn't meet before we did. Yeah, over the years, every time I saw him, I would say, hi, 
I'm Rose. He goes, we met. And I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And that happened about eight times. <laughs> and then one time we were at Jose Parla's opening. Get out. And he, I, he's, he was a guest on our podcast. Oh, yeah. So I saw him standing in the gallery and I said to myself, literally, I went, oh my God, he would make a good husband. And I walked over to him and I said, hi, I'm Rose. He goes, you do this all the time. <laughs> Cut to a year later, and it was Lee Kiona's 50th birthday party, and he was the host. I was the MC. I had flown back into town for 48 hours just to MC Lee's 50th birthday party. Now, hold on. For those who don't know, Lee Quinones is a pillar in the art community, was the number one most wanted graffiti writer in the 70s by the MTA uh, authorities, and also has been featured in the Whitney, I believe, and multiple museums and galleries around the world. But back to the story. Lee's like my play brother, and we had never crossed paths. So he's on the mic. So I'm on the mic. I'm hosting. Rosie comes up. She's a guest speaker. And I just remember saying, thanks, Rosie. You're a hard act to follow. Who's next? And he says, how you doing, Rose? I said, oh, it's nice to meet you. And he laughed. He goes, dude, every time. I said, really? And he said, yeah, the last time we met, but I'm single now. And I said, really? <laughs> really? So later that day, Lee was driving me home. And I said, that friend of yours, you should give him my email because maybe he could come and you know, speak to the kids at my charity. He goes, you like them? I go, no, this is, I'm being very professional. And he did, he emailed me. He said, let's go to lunch. And we've been together ever since. Proof that there's still hope at 50. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So you both grew up in late 70s, early 80s, New York City, and were able to witness and participate in hip-hop at its, uh, pretty much its, its infancy. More recently, there's been a mainstream fascination with hip-hop. We've seen a lot, of, a lot of documentaries. It seems like they're coming out left and right. A lot of uh, uh, dramas with hip-hop, early hip-hop as the backdrop. I'm curious, um, what is it in your experiences with hip-hop that you think might be missing from these mainstream narratives? sense of community. We were recently at the Eric B. and Rakim 30th anniversary at the Apollo, and that was kind of a religious experience for me, not just because of the music and being 10 feet away from Rod doing his tracks, but the stage was filled with like 60, 80 old school heads and, and people who might have been important back then, but never really got the shine. And it felt more about the love everybody was feeling towards each other and the love everybody had for hip-hop and how they come up more than the music itself. I think to some degree it was the culture first and the music second back then. Now it's kind of the music, the music, the music, and the culture's translated in fashion, but it's not... I don't have that same sense of community we did back then. Well, for me, it is about community. And I think that, that that is lost. And I really, what really bothers me about the narrative of, of hip-hop is that it's just all about African-Americans and that it was an African-American culture. It wasn't. It was urban culture. It was about New York City. We were the leftovers of Vietnam. 
We were the leftovers of the Nixon era. And it was kids who were creating a movement, you know? And, it, and that's what hip hop to me is about. That's what graffiti is about. It, it, it's not black, it's not white, it's not Latin, it's not that. It's about people, it's about community, and it's about the inner city vibe of New York. That's what it is to me. So, Hayes, you were amongst a tight-knit generation of graffiti artists that came up in the 70s, but we read in an interview in Freshness magazine that before you got into graffiti, you actually had a foot in the fine art world, and you shared an anecdote about how your father took you to Elaine de Kooning's studio. What drew you to art at such a young age in the first place? Well, it's interesting because I am sort of connecting those dots now later in life in a much bigger way to what inspired me before graffiti defined who I was. And my father and parents were pretty progressive, you know, Upper West Side back in the day. And he had a best friend who had collected a crazy pop art collection in the 60s. And the story goes that my father did a favor for someone who had become a famous poet who was one of the Columbia Five, if I'm getting my number right there. And as an exchange for that favor, David, the poet, got Elaine de Kooning, Willem de Kooning's wife, to paint a portrait of my sister and I when we were 10, 10 and a half, like a year before I turned bad or so. Um, <laughs> but, you know, while my sister posed, she would give me oil paints and canvas to work with, and I still have two abstract oil paintings I did after those sessions. So she told my parents, you know, take them down to Pearl Paint, where we eventually racked all our paint. Um, <laughs> that means did you say rack? Yes. Yeah, rack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we went down, and I we bought materials, and I stretched my own canvas and did my first abstract paintings when I was ten. And now my career and sort of uh, aspirations as a painter later in life are to sort of fuse those two inspirations between the hip-hop world and the 60s fine art world. His um, mom still has that painting. And the best thing that I love about it, my husband looks so bored. <laughs> <laughs> my mother likes to tell the story where someone came to the house and said, oh shit, is that your kid? Boy, are you in for trouble. <laughs> More coming up from Eric Hayes, who, by the way, designed our logo, and Rosie Perez coming right up. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Red Bull Radio. Whether it's the latest dance hall out of Kingston, techno from Berlin, underground hip-hop, or old soul gems, Red Bull Radio is the place to tune in and discover great music that's new to you. With in-depth interviews and live performances from festivals around the globe, plus music handpicked, by influential artists, journalists, and DJs. You'll know what you're looking for when you hear it. Listen at redbullradio.com. Uh. <laughs> so. <laughs> Rosie, uh, some people who are your you know, super followers may not even be aware that you were a dancer before you were an actress and also a choreographer on In Living Color, the, the hit TV show of the 90s. You were nominated for three Emmys, and then you wound up choreographing for artists like LL Cool J on his tour, uh, Slick Rick, Bobby Brown, 
Heavy D, and even 60s pop icon Diane Ross. Yeah. Yeah, let's give it up, because that's huge. Yeah. Now, of the aforementioned artists, who did you have to work the hardest with? To... <laughs> okay. Oh, he's, he's such a wonderful person, and he, he does have a sweet soul. I'm so sorry, but it was Elder Barge. Oh. What? Oh, my goodness, it was so difficult. He was, he was, like, locked into this weird early 80s kind of groove, and, and it was so hard. It was so hard. <laughs> there was one day in rehearsals, I said, just pull up a chair to the mirror. And he goes, what are we doing? I said, just, just follow me. Just bob your head. That took hours. <laughs> hours. Hours. I, like, I think I got, like, whiplash. And, um, but, but, you know, if you're worth your salt as a choreographer, you kind of just have to let the person be who they are. Sure. And so when the video came out, it was actually very charming that he wasn't great. You know what I mean? It was really, it, it actually was, you know. And um, there were people, like LL Cool J was really smart enough not to really dance that hard, you know. <laughs> the most surprising was Diana Ross because that woman did not show up for one rehearsal. I, I sat in the rehearsal studio every single day for three weeks waiting for her with my assistant. And she showed up the day of the, uh, of the video shoot, and she watched us dance, and she did it. Uh, I, so I'm curious, because your transition from being at the park jams, at the clubs, and then going to choreography, it just seems so, so seamless, but at the same time, I don't know that you have like a master's degree in dance choreography. No, like this is all self-taught, right? Sort of. One, I was, I was a nerdy kid and I loved to watch musicals. And um, I was in the foster care system and then the, in the home system for a little bit. And the nuns there in the Catholic home, they taught me how to tap dance. What? <laughs> I swear to God. The nuns would be in their habits like... Da, 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 da. Hilarious. Oh, yeah, and they, used to, they taught me how to play baseball, too. Holla. <laughs> Shout out to the nuns. And uh, I'm dead up, I'm dead up. And um, what had happened was is that in Soul Train, Don Cornelius, God rest his soul, hated hip hop. And he did not want anyone to dance hip hop when I first came. When we weren't filming and when Dorn breaks, we would play around um, and I would do routines with those guys there and we would teach each other things and I taught them hip hop. Lil Silas Jr. of MCA Records happened to be there that day. And he was head of A&R. And he said, who are you? I said, my name is Rose. And he goes, come here. And I said, why? And he said, I want you to teach what you're doing to my new artists. Wow. And he said, he, he was part of a group. This is big secret. He's going solo. And I want you to choreograph. I said, I'm not a choreographer. And he said, I'll pay you 1600 a day. I said, I'll be there Monday. <laughs> and, and that's how it happened. And that recording artist happened to be Bobby Brown. 
And the subtext to that is what you saw Bobby Brown doing on stage back then was straight out of the clubs in New York. And Rosie, you know, uh, Rosie's always quick to say that, you know, what was underground yesterday was was mainstream tomorrow with that stuff. So, Rosie, you're a a multidimensional woman and actress, but one clear facet of your character is toughness. When you watch those clips of you dancing, sure, you're dancing, but in a sense, you're almost broadcasting that you are not to be played with. At last year's Daring Woman Summit, you spoke about how when you first got into acting, you were told by people to not rock the boat, to be grateful for any roles that would come your way. But, you know, you're a girl from Bushwick and Williamsburg. That, that's not going to cut it. So can you share with us any instances where your rocking the boat had led to more opportunities or better opportunities for yourself or for other people? Well, sadly to say, it was the Latino community in Hollywood who came after me and they took me out to lunch and they basically told me that I was... How many? It was like three people? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know? (laughs) Jeez Louise. (laughs) And um, (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) Take a table for two. (laughs) Latino Hollywood, 1 p.m. But... uh, (laughs) I remember they, they said to me, you know, you could, you could cut off the accent, you could stop that now. And I go, what? What are you talking about? And they said, and you don't have to be so loud. You know, we've been making our mark here in Hollywood for very long, and we've been moving away from negative stereotypes, and we need you to do the same. I said, yo, 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 ho, 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 ho. Tell him, Rosie. Are you trying to insinuate that I'm a negative stereotype? Honey, there are more people like me than there are of you. And I said, and so what I'm doing is I'm bringing the realness. And if you can't deal with it, then that's your issue. And I said, and if we keep whitewashing who we are, they're never going to accept us. And I said, so, I'm sorry. And, and the woman said, we've been fighting. I said, I understand you've been fighting. And with all due respect, because of your fight, You have an audacious person in front of you. My audacity is a result of your fight. And now we could be who we are. I said, we can have loud Latinos. We can have quiet Latinos. We can have pretty, ugly, white, black, brown. We can have it all, you know? And and it was really difficult. And it, and it, I don't say that triumphantly because it really hurt my soul. I remember going home and just crying my eyes out. And I had an agent who actually told me if I dyed my hair blonde and got a nose job, I could pass. And she, and then she said, I said, pass for what? And she goes, well, you know. I said, no, I know. Do you have the nerve to actually say it to me? And she goes, oh, come on. I said, you know what? You're fired. And I walked out. And she was telling me this, and, and it, was, it was really, really hard. That's why hip-hop spoke to me so strongly, that hard angst, that fight, that like, yeah, let's do it hard. Let's, let me let all the hurt out. Let me let all the joy out. Let me just let my soul just like explode and breathe on that drum beat, you know? That's what, I, that's what it came from. That was beautiful, really. Thank you. So we've established that you're from the Upper West Side, from Bushwick and Williamsburg, two neighborhoods that have transformed drastically. (laughs) What's it like to see such change in your homes? I moved to Rosie's neighborhood when we got married, 
And that used to be a real quiet neighborhood. Now, in the last five years, we're completely overrun by gentrification. Um, you know, something back to what Rosie was saying in terms of sort of standing up for yourself. I actually found myself in a large battle with DOT over um, transportation issues in our neighborhood because the change is coming so hard and so fast and looks to be designed by college graduates on paper, not people who live in New York. You know, this is kind of a jump. Uh, one thing I want to say, regardless of the career, one of the things that's I've learned so much about, that's impressed me so much, that's so much part of Rosie who she is, is still being that activist, fighting for people, fighting for people in that position, in the city we grew up in, in the inner city, um, whether it's education or politics. Uh, you know, I'd like to think that Rosie especially and I a little uh, fight the good fight when the opportunity presents itself to preserve what we love about New York. Rosie, for 25 years, you've been on the board of Urban Arts, a nonprofit dedicated to providing opportunities for youth to be involved in the arts. You've also been a major voice and advocate in the fight against HIV AIDS. What draws you to your work as an activist, especially working within these communities? I don't know. When I see something that's wrong, I just something inside of me just flares up. And I just want to be on the right side of right and fight for that. And I, I don't know any other way. It's like there's this conviction in my heart that happens, and my, my husband sees it <laughs> all the time. Um, you know, where I just watch the television if I see something happening, and I was like, what is that orange man doing? <laughs> Has her activism rubbed off on you at all? 100%. You know, it blows my mind to uh, find out that this delinquent immigrant kid from the Upper West Side is uh, shaking hands with the president in the White House. It's uh, uh, Obama, not, not the current one. <laughs> Just to be clear. True, true that, true that. Uh, one of the most compelling things that you have fought for is beyond your advocacy for youth, arts, and for improvement of of conditions for people with HIV and with the film that you created, Yo Soy Boricua Pa Que Tu Lo Sepas, which premiered on the, the IFC channel. In your film, you, you didn't just go into the layer of your family, but you went into uh, the sterilization of women in Puerto Rico back in the 70s and 80s. You went into the, the bombing in Vieques, and then you even went to the point in the early 2000s of evangelizing and even getting arrested so that the U.S. Navy could stop the bombing in the island of Vieques. You didn't have to do any of that. What's driving all that? I don't, I, 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 I don't know. Hearing the stories of the island, being a New Yorican, and my aunt being so proud, God rest her soul, of being a Boricua, and my father as well, and, and it always bothered me that we were disrespected by not being included in the history books, and the sterilization of Puerto Rican women, and on and on and on. I think that that's, where it was because I, I wanted everybody else to feel so proud of who we are as a people, as me and my sister Carmen and my brother Tito, you know, and my aunt and my cousin Millie and all the, and, and, and not feel less than or not feel that 
you have to either act white or act black or act whatever. Just be. Be who you are. You know, find out who your ancestors are and where your roots come from and, and stand strong in that. Why can't you just celebrate that? Don't try to be anything else. Just be what God made you, you know, and don't feel ashamed of it. Eric, what, what, um, what issues do you care most about? Traffic. <laughs> Municipal planning. And the fact that, by and large, uh, developers and big business is tearing down historical New York to put up these shit boxes to sell to out-of-towners and build bike lanes so they can get to their new condo. That's the old New Yorker in me. More towards Rosie's side of the fence. Um, arts education has become a big thing to me. Uh, I've started to do a lot of workshops with kids, whether it's a just sort of baseball cap and a pen kind of thing, but increasingly in the last couple of years, uh, especially with some of the corporations I collaborate with, there's not a meeting I have about strategy for a project where I'm not pitching community outreach and some educational component. All right, so um, some of our tried and true podcast followers, their favorite portion of the episode, the impression session. So, Rosie and Eric, have you been listening to our podcast? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's perfect for sitting in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what Stretch and I are going to do is we're going to each play you a song. Just listen to how the music makes you feel. I don't know I love you can do Barry White voice right now. Hey, Stretch. Hey, baby. Come on in here with this sticks that is New York City by Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson from the It's Your World LP. You know, you know what that song um, uh, made me think of? When I first went into the city by myself, that Saturday Night Fever moment, crossing the bridge, and just wandering around, you know, half scared and half fascinated, and also disappointed. <laughs> Because back then it was New York City wasn't all that pretty, but the energy was electric. See, it kind of reminded me of the old bodegas up on Columbus Avenue with the old men playing dominoes with the cheap little speaker above the door, and you went in, bought your RC Cola, see if you want five cents in the bottle RC cap. Cola. You know what time it is. <laughs> So Hayes, you you uh you lived in Los Angeles for over a decade, and then you came back to New York and sort of rekindled your fine art career. This song kind of made me think of of your time in L.A. when we got cool, and then transitioning back. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I did a 12-year bid in L.A. <laughs> Simple 
sort of breakdown is that I was turning 30, hip hop was coming of age, and I kind of had this sense that, hey, wait a minute, I'm a New Yorker who works in a New York style, from a New York culture, dealing with a, what was then primarily a New York medium of hip hop, and I wanted to be part of its expansion around the world. Well, I picked that song because you two are quintessential New Yorkers. It's like the, the perfect song that could have been played at the wedding, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. This is like the two of them. Well, I, I say I traveled the world, came back to New York, and married the original Brooklyn girl. Amazing. Applauso, applauso, applauso. All right. Um, I'm going to play a tune for the two of you, and I hope you enjoy it. Look what you've done. Should come with a disclaimer So that no one ever falls For what you got She'll never fall again She won't He should come with a disclaimer That song was Louis Vega, um, featuring uh, an incredible vocalist by the name of Monique Bingham, and the title is Elevator Going Up. Now, the reason why I played that song for the two of you is, well, first of all, people know you, Rosie, for your, your hip-hop and your choreography, but they may not know that you're like a tried-and-true househead. Yes, I am. Like, <laughs> tried-and-true. Yeah. But what I was curious about was, Hayes, as many events we've been at together, I mean, you did artwork for Nike, you've done artwork for Swatch, collabs, I mean, we've traveled the world. I've never seen you dance. <laughs> I know my lane. <laughs> Have you seen me dance? I've seen you dance. You've seen me? Oh, wow. You gotta... yeah. I'm, I'm good at nodding my head occasionally. So what happens in the household when one of you is playing music that the other may not be so inspired by? Oh, that We ex- have three floors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Real talk. My, 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 my favorite is I'll hear a song. We, we did it last night when, we, when you were playing Michael Jackson. And um, I got up and I started dancing in my pajamas and, and I'm dancing and I'm sweating and I turn around and I look at him and he's laying back in the bed. He went, mm-hmm, go ahead. <laughs> that was it. That was it. <laughs> One day, she had just came out with 7-Eleven, uh, Beyonce, and, <laughs> and I'm, I am rocking hard out to it. And... All you heard, with, I had the headphones on, so you know you, you're, you're louder than you think. And I'm going, smacky, smacky in the air, smacky, smacky. <laughs> Where your hands are, tusa, tusa in the air, smacky. I know you care. <laughs> with no musical soundtrack, just like you heard it. <laughs> and he goes, what the f- are you listening to? What are you saying? But yes, I am a househead, and people don't know that. That is my heart and soul. I love house music. I think our audience knows the difference, but can you explain for our wider audience, beyond the aesthetic differences between hip-hop and house, what the different ethos are with those two scenes, if you can generalize? Hip-hop is hard. Hip-hop could be hard even when it's smooth. It ain't hard to tell by 
Nasty Nas, you know, it's smooth, but there's a hardness in it. House music to me is about riding the rhythm of love, of pain, of joy, and getting lost in the music in a very esoteric way. It's very different because you don't dance on the drummer's beat, you ride it. And so when you're writing something like that, you got to let go. It's freedom music. Yes, it, it really is. is. What about when you're riding it and there's traffic? <laughs> <laughs> Let's give a round of applause for Rosie Perez and Eric Hayes. <laughs> That's the first ever live was good. We've got two more coming up. One with amazing chef Jose Andres and another with the legendary tattoo artist Mr. Cartoon. This episode was produced by Sammy Yanigan, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Micaela Rodriguez. Plus edited by Nigeri Eaton and Steve Nelson. Special thanks to everyone that helped with the live show, especially Jessica Goldstein and Ali Prescott. Executive producer is Abby O'Neill and our VP of programming is Anya Grumman. See ya! <laughs> <laughs>